Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, it's Latif from Radio Lab. Our goal with each episode is to make you think, how did I live this long and not know that? Radio Lab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Listen wherever you get podcasts. From WNYC Studios, I'm Brian Lehrer. This is my Daily Politics Podcast. It's Friday, August 4th. This week, when special counsel Jack Smith announced the indictment of Donald Trump on conspiring to defraud the United States and disenfranchise voters in the 2020 election, he made a point to say this. The indictment was issued by a grand jury of citizens here in the District of Columbia, and it sets forth the crimes charged in detail. I encourage everyone to read it in full. I encourage everyone to read it in full. Special Counsel Smith also made sure to remind everyone of this. I must emphasize that the indictment is only an allegation and that the defendant must be presumed innocent until proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt in a court of law. Special Counsel Jack Smith on Tuesday. So in the spirit of that presumption and of the Constitution in one of the most consequential cases that our democracy could ever see, this is a special edition of The Brian Lehrer Show today as we take on Jack Smith's plea to all Americans. Again, he encouraged everyone to read the indictment in full. Now, we don't have time in this two-hour show for every word, but what we can do is read a lot of it, letting you hear many of the details of the evidence that the special counsel wants us to judge for ourselves. We will also save some time at the end of the show for some calls from you to say what jumped out at you from hearing the text that you may not have realized just from the news reports over the last few days. And I won't subject you to the torture of hearing just me read for nearly two hours. We're not that mean around here. So we have five guest readers lined up who have each agreed to take different sections of the indictment to present as we go. But I will start with the opening section of the 45-page document. It is simply called Introduction, and here we go. Introduction, paragraph one. The defendant, Donald J. Trump, was the 45th president of the United States and a candidate for re-election in 2020. The defendant lost the 2020 presidential election. Paragraph two. Despite... Having lost, the defendant was determined to remain in power. So for more than two months following Election Day on November 3, 2020, the defendant spread lies that there had been outcome-determinative fraud in the election and that he had actually won. These claims were false, and the defendant knew that they were false. But the defendant repeated and widely disseminated them anyway to make his knowingly false claims appear legitimate, create an intense national atmosphere of mistrust and anger, and erode public faith in the administration of the election. Paragraph 3. The defendant had a right, like every American, 
to speak publicly about the election and even to claim falsely that there had been outcome determinative fraud during the election and that he had won. He was also entitled to formally challenge the results of the election through lawful and appropriate means, such as by seeking recounts or audits of the popular vote in states or filing lawsuits challenging ballots and procedures. Indeed, in many cases, the defendant did pursue these methods of contesting the election results. His efforts to change the outcome in any state through recounts, audits, or legal challenges were uniformly unsuccessful. Paragraph 4. Shortly after Election Day, the defendant also pursued unlawful means of discounting legitimate votes and subverting the election results. In doing so, the defendant perpetrated three criminal conspiracies. A. A conspiracy to defraud the United States by using dishonesty, fraud, and deceit to impair, obstruct, and defeat the lawful federal government function by which the results of the presidential election are collected, counted, and certified by the federal government in violation of United States Code 371. B. A conspiracy to corruptly obstruct and impede the January 6th congressional proceeding at which the collected results of the presidential election are counted and certified called the certification proceeding, in violation of 18 U.S.C. 1512K, and C, a conspiracy against the right to vote and to have one's vote counted, in violation of 18 U.S.C. 241. Each of these conspiracies, which built on the widespread mistrust the defendant was creating through pervasive and destabilizing lies about election fraud, targeted a bedrock function of the United States federal government, the nation's process of collecting, counting, and certifying the results of the presidential election, what the indictment then calls the federal government's function. Count. 1. Conspiracy to defraud the United States. The allegations contained in paragraphs 1 through 4 in this indictment are alleged and fully incorporated here by the reference. The Conspiracy. Paragraph 6. From on or about November 14, 2020 through or uh, through on or about January 20th, 2021, in the District of Columbia and elsewhere, the defendant, Donald J. Trump, did knowingly combine, conspire, confederate, and agree with co-conspirators known and unknown to the grand jury to defraud the United States by using dishonesty, fraud, and deceit to impair, obstruct, and defeat the lawful federal government function by which the results of the presidential election are collected, counted, and certified by the federal government. Purpose of the Conspiracy Paragraph 7. The purpose of the conspiracy was to overturn the legitimate results of the 2020 presidential election by using knowingly false claims of election fraud to obstruct the federal government function by which those results are collected, counted, and certified. The defendant's co-conspirators. Paragraph 8. The defendant enlisted co-conspirators to assist him in his criminal efforts to overturn the legitimate results of the 2020 presidential election and retain power, among these were 
co-conspirator one. And I'm going to insert here that co-conspirator one has been widely identified as Rudy Giuliani. We're going to hear about Giuliani a lot during this reading today. Co-conspirator one, an attorney who is willing to spread knowingly false claims and pursue strategies that the defendant's 2020 re-election campaign attorneys would not. Co-conspirator two, an attorney who devised and attempted to implement a strategy to leverage the vice president's ceremonial role overseeing the certification to obstruct the certification of the presidential election. Co-defendant three, an attorney whose unfounded claims of election fraud the defendant privately acknowledged to others sounded, quote, crazy. Nonetheless, the defendant embraced and publicly amplified co-conspirator three's disinformation. Co-conspirator four, a Justice Department official who worked on civil matters and who, with a defendant, attempted to use the Justice Department to open sham election crime investigations and influence state legislatures with knowingly false claims of election fraud. Co-conspirator five, an attorney who assisted in devising and attempting to implement a plan to submit fraudulent slates of presidential electors to obstruct the certification proceeding. And co-conspirator six, a political consultant who helped implement a plan to submit fraudulent slates of presidential electors to obstruct the certification proceeding. Now WNYC's Tiffany Hansen will read the next section of the indictment called Manner and Means. Tiffany, take it away. All right. Paragraph 10. The defendant's conspiracy to impair, obstruct, and defeat the federal government function through dishonesty, fraud, and deceit included the following manner and means. The defendant and co-conspirators used knowingly false claims of election fraud to get state legislators and election officials to subvert the legitimate election results and change electoral votes for the defendant's opponent, Joseph R. Biden, Jr., to electoral votes for the defendant. That is, on the pretext of baseless fraud claims, the defendant pushed officials in certain states to ignore the popular vote, disenfranchise millions of voters, dismiss legitimate electors, and ultimately cause the ascertainment of and voting by illegitimate electors in favor of the defendant. The defendant and co-conspirators organized fraudulent states of electors in seven targeted states, Arizona, Georgia, Michigan, Nevada, New Mexico, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, attempting to mimic the procedures that legitimate electors were supposed to follow under the Constitution and other federal and state laws. This included causing the fraudulent electors to meet on the day appointed by federal law on which legitimate electors were to gather and cast their votes, cast fraudulent votes for the defendant, and signed certificates falsely representing that they were legitimate electors. Some fraudulent electors were tricked into participating based on the understanding that their votes would be used only if the defendant succeeded in outcome-determinative lawsuits within their state, which the defendant never did. The defendant and co-conspirators then caused these fraudulent electors to transmit their false certificates to the vice president and other government officials to be counted at the certification proceeding on January 6th. 
the defendant and co-conspirators attempted to use the power and authority of the Justice Department to conduct sham election crime investigations and to send a letter to the targeted states that falsely claimed that the Justice Department had identified significant concerns that may have impacted the election outcome, that sought to advance the defendant's fraudulent elector plan by using the Justice Department's authority to falsely present the fraudulent electors as a valid alternative to the legitimate electors, and that urged, on behalf of the Justice Department, the targeted state's legislatures to convene and create, to convene to create, rather, the opportunity to choose the fraudulent electors over the legitimate electors. The defendants and co-conspirators attempted to enlist the vice president to use his ceremonial role at the January 6th certification proceeding to fraudulently alter the election results. First, using knowingly false claims of election fraud, the defendant and co-conspirators attempted to convince the vice president to use the defendant's fraudulent electors, reject legitimate electoral votes, or send legitimate electoral votes to state legislatures for review rather than counting them. When that failed, on the morning of January 6th, the defendant and co-conspirators repeated knowingly false claims of election fraud to gather supporters, falsely told them that the vice president had the authority to and might alter the election results, and directed them to the Capitol to obstruct the certification proceeding and exert pressure on the vice president to take the fraudulent actions he had previously refused. After it became public on the afternoon of January 6th that the vice president would not fraudulently alter the election results, a large and angry crowd, including many individuals whom the defendant had deceived into believing that the vice president could and might change the election results, violently attacked the Capitol and halted the proceeding. As violence ensued, the defendant and co-conspirators exploited the disruption by redoubling efforts to levy false claims of election fraud and convince members of Congress to further delay the certification based on those claims. Now, I'm going to jump in here for a second, Tiffany, because I just want to draw everybody's attention to what you're about to read. I think this is one of the most important as well as compelling parts of the entire indictment, the section that you're about to get to called the defendant's knowledge of the falsity of his election fraud claims, because I think this will be a key to whether they can uh, prove in court that he had the intent to knowingly lie. So I'm going to let you reread that subject title and continue Mm -hmm. on with the content of it. But I just want to draw everyone's attention to what I think is a really key section of the indictment. Sorry for the interruption. No, the the subject title is the defendant's knowledge of the falsity of his election fraud claims. It's paragraph 11. The defendant, his co-conspirators, and their agents made knowingly false claims that there had been outcome-determinative fraud in the 2020 presidential election. These prolific lies about election fraud included dozens of specific claims that there had been substantial fraud in certain states, such as large numbers of dead, non-resident, non-citizen, or otherwise ineligible voters had cast ballots, or that voting machines had changed votes for the defendant to votes for Biden. These claims were false, and the defendant knew that they were false. In fact, the defendant was notified repeatedly that his claims were untrue, often by the people on whom he relied for candid advice on important matters and who were best positioned to know the facts, and he deliberately disregarded the truth. For instance, 
the defendant's vice president, who personally stood to gain by remaining in office as part of the defendant's ticket and whom the defendant had asked to study fraud allegations, told the defendant that he had seen no evidence of outcome-determinative fraud. The senior leaders of the Justice Department, appointed by the defendant and responsible for investigating credible allegations of election crimes, told the defendant on multiple occasions and various allegations of that, that various allegations of fraud were unsupported. The Director of National Intelligence, the defendant's principal advisor on intelligence matters related to national security, disabused the defendant of the notion that the intelligence community's findings regarding foreign interference would change the outcome of the election. The Department of Homeland Security's Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, known as CISA, whose existence the defendant signed into law to protect the nation's cybersecurity infrastructure from attack, joined an official multi-agency statement that there was no evidence any voting system had been compromised and that declared the 2020 election, quote, the most secure in American history. Days later, after the CISA director, whom the defendant had appointed, announced publicly that election security experts were in agreement that claims of computer-based election fraud were unsubstantiated, the defendant fired him. Senior White House attorneys, selected by the defendant to provide him candid advice, informed the defendant that there was no evidence of outcome-determinative election fraud and told him that his presidency would end on Inauguration Day 2021. Senior staffers on the defendant's 2020 re-election campaign, known as Defendant's Campaign or Campaign, whose sole mission was the defendant's re-election, told the defendant on November 7, 2020, that he only had a 5 to 10 percent chance of prevailing in the election and that success was contingent on the defendant's winning ongoing vote counts or litigation in Arizona, Georgia, and Wisconsin. Within a week of that assessment, the defendant lost in Arizona, meaning he had lost the election. State legislators and officials, many of whom were the defendant's political allies, had voted for him and wanted him to be reelected, repeatedly informed the defendant that his claims of fraud in their states were unsubstantiated or false and resisted his pressure to act based upon them. States and federal courts, as neutral arbiters responsible for ensuring a fair and even-handed administration of election laws, rejected every outcome-determinative post-election lawsuit filed by the defendant, his co-conspirators, and allies, providing the defendant real-time notice that his allegations were meritless. Paragraph 12. The defendant widely disseminated his false claims of election fraud for months, despite the fact that he knew, and in many cases had been informed directly, that they were not true. The defendant's knowingly false statements were integral to his criminal plans to defeat the federal government function, obstruct the certification, and interfere with others' right to vote and to have their votes counted. He made these knowingly false claims throughout the post-election time period, including those below, and he immediate that he immediately before the attack on Capitol wait a second, including those below that he made immediately before the attack on the Capitol on January sixth. A. The defendant insinuated that more than ten thousand dead voters had more than ten thousand dead voters had voted in Georgia. Just four days earlier, Georgia's Secretary of State had explained to the 
to the defendant that this was false. B. The defendant asserted that there had been 205,000 more votes than voters in Pennsylvania. The defendant's acting attorney general and acting deputy attorney general had explained to him that this was false. The defendant said that there had been suspicious vote dump in Detroit, Michigan. The defendant's attorney general had explained to the defendant that this was false, and the defendant's allies in Michigan, in the Michigan State Legislature, the Speaker of the House of Representatives and Majority Leader of the Senate, had publicly announced that there was no evidence of substantial fraud in the state. The defendant claimed that there had been tens of thousands of double votes and other fraud in Nevada. The Nevada Secretary of State had previously rebutted the defendant's fraud claims by publicly posting, quote, facts versus myths document explaining that Nevada judges had reviewed and rejected them, and the Nevada Supreme Court had rendered a decision denying such claims. The defendant said that more than 30,000 non-citizens had voted in Arizona. The defendant's own campaign manager had explained to him that such claims were false, and the Speaker of the Arizona House of Representatives, who had supported the defendant in the election, had issued a public statement that there was no evidence of substantial fraud in Arizona. And finally, the defendant asserted that voting machines in various contested states had switched votes from the defendant to Biden. The defendant's attorney general, acting attorney general, and acting deputy attorney general all had explained to him that this was false, and numerous recounts and audits had confirmed the accuracy of voting machines. And, folks, that was WNYC's Tiffany Hansen reading from pages 5 through 9 of the indictment of Donald Trump regarding his alleged 2020 election fraud and disenfranchisement of voters. Great job, Tiffany. You even said Nevada the way they say it in Nevada, not Nevada the way we generally say it around here. So thank you very much. Thanks for helping out. You're quite welcome. Our next guest reader is WNYC's Kai Wright, host of Notes from America, our national Sunday evening call-in show, which airs at 6 o'clock New York time. Kai picks it up with a section called The Criminal Agreement and Acts to Affect the Object of the Conspiracy. One note about the section we're about to hear, you will hear the term co-conspirator one multiple times. And as I pointed out at the beginning, Co-conspirator one is not identified by name in the indictment, but many experts have figured out that it's definitely Trump lawyer and former New York City mayor, Rudy Giuliani. You will hear what a central role Giuliani allegedly played in trying to persuade state officials in Arizona in this section to cancel Joe Biden's win in that state, despite Giuliani being unable to provide any evidence that the election there was stolen. Kai, thanks for helping out, and take it away. My pleasure. And since we're annotating, I will add that I think, to me, this section is where the special counsel starts trying to tell the story of conspiracy. As I understand it, you've got to like tell a story of conspiracy to make a conspiracy case. So Great. I will try to rise to that challenge. Subheading, the defendant's use of deceit to get state officials to subvert the legitimate election results and change electoral votes. Shortly after Election Day, which fell on November 3rd, 2020, the defendant launched his criminal scheme. On November 13th, the defendant's campaign attorneys conceded in court that he had lost the vote count in the state of Arizona, 
meaning based on the assessment the defendant's campaign advisors had given him just a week earlier, the defendant had lost the election. So the next day, the defendant turned to co-conspirator one, likely Rudy Giuliani, whom he announced would spearhead his efforts going forward to challenge the election results. From that point on, the defendant and his co-conspirators executed a strategy to use knowing deceit in the targeted states to impair, to impair, obstruct, and defeat the federal government function, including as described below, Arizona. On November 13th, 2020, the defendant had a conversation with his campaign manager who informed him that a claim that had been circulating that a substantial number of non-citizens had voted in Arizona was false. On November 22nd, eight days before Arizona's governor certified the ascertainment of the state's legitimate electors based on the popular vote, the defendant and co-conspirator one called the speaker of the Arizona House of Representatives and made knowingly false claims of election fraud aimed at interfering with the ascertainment of and voting by Arizona's electors as follows. A, the defendant and co-conspirator one falsely asserted, among other things, that a substantial number of non-citizens, non-residents, and dead people had voted fraudulently in Arizona. The Arizona House Speaker asked co-conspirator one for evidence of those claims which co-conspirator one did not have, but claimed he would provide. Co-conspirator one never did so. B, the defendant and co-conspirator one asked the Arizona House Speaker to call the legislature into session to hold a hearing based on their claims of election fraud. The Arizona House Speaker refused, stating that doing so would require a two-thirds vote of its members and he would not allow it without actual evidence of fraud. C, the defendant and co-conspirator one asked the Arizona House Speaker to use the legislature to circumvent the process by which legitimate electors would be ascertained for Biden based on the popular vote and replace those electors with a new slate for the defendant. The Arizona House Speaker refused, responding that the suggestion was beyond anything he had ever heard or thought of as something within his authority. On December 1st, co-conspirator one met with the Arizona House Speaker. When the Arizona House Speaker again asked co-conspirator one for evidence of the outcome determinative election fraud he and, the, he and the defendant had been claiming, co-conspirator one responded with words to the effect of, quote, we don't have the evidence, but we have lots of theories. On December 4th, the Arizona House Speaker issued a public statement that said, in part, no election is perfect, and if there were evidence of illegal votes or improper count, then Arizona law provides a process to contest the election, a lawsuit under state law. But the law does not authorize the legislature to reverse the results of an election. As a conservative Republican, I do not like the results of the presidential election. I voted for President Trump and worked hard to reelect him, but I cannot and will not entertain a suggestion that we violate current law to change the outcome of a certified election. I and my fellow I and my fellow legislators swore an oath to support the US Constitution and the Constitution and laws of the state of Arizona. It would violate that oath, the basic principles of republican government and the rule of law if we attempted to nullify people's vote 
based on unsupported theories of fraud. Under the laws we wrote and voted upon, Arizona voters choose who wins and our system requires that their choice be respected. On January 4th, 2021, co-conspirator two called the Arizona House Speaker to urge him to use a majority of the legislature to decertify the state's legitimate electors. Arizona's validly ascertained electors had voted three weeks earlier and sent their votes to Congress, which was scheduled to count the votes in Biden's favor in just two days' time at the January 6th certification proceeding. When the Arizona House Speaker explained that the state investigations had uncovered no evidence of substantial fraud in the state, co-conspirator two conceded that he, quote, didn't know enough about facts on the ground, end quote, in Arizona, but nonetheless told the Arizona House Speaker to decertify and, quote, let the courts sort it out. The Arizona House Speaker refused, stating that he would not, quote, play with the oath he had taken to uphold the United States Constitution and Arizona law. On January 6th, the defendant publicly repeated the knowingly false claim that 36,000 non-citizens had voted in Arizona. WNYC's Kai Wright, reading from the indictment. Kai, thanks a lot. Uh, Since we're annotating a little bit, as you noted, um, that one line, that quote from Giuliani, if they can substantiate that at trial, that he said, we don't have the evidence to the Arizona Speaker of the House. We don't have the evidence, but we have lots of theories. That may be the single most bombshell line in the whole indictment. Yeah, we don't have the evidence. Kai, thanks a lot. We'll be listening to Notes from America Sunday night. Thank you. And again, listeners, because sometimes you can't tell the players without a scorecard that co-conspirator one, who was so central to those Arizona allegations and to some others that I'm about to read from, has been widely identified as former New York City Mayor Rudy Giuliani. Now, I mentioned at the top of this special edition that we don't have time in this two-hour show to read the whole 45-page indictment and to take some calls with your reactions at the end. So we're presenting some major representative chunks. We just heard Kai read the Arizona section of the indictment. We're going to skip over uh, some of the other state-specific portions. The details from Arizona seem really clear and so allegedly brazen that we gave you as a prime example of how Trump and his co-conspirators allegedly tried to defraud various swing states into flipping or canceling uh, their results. There are also state-specific sections on Georgia, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, each in their own ways as eye-popping as the charges we just heard uh, regarding Arizona. Go ahead and read those for yourselves when you get a chance. I will throw in here the Pennsylvania and Wisconsin sections as well, uh, which are much shorter than the Arizona one. But here we go with Pennsylvania, paragraph 42 of the indictment. On November 11th, 2020, the defendant publicly maligned a Philadelphia city commissioner for stating on the news that there was no evidence of widespread fraud in Philadelphia. As a result, the Philadelphia city commissioner and his family received death threats. 43, paragraph 43. On November 25th, the day after Pennsylvania's governor signed a certificate of ascertainment that thus certified to the federal government that Biden's electors were the legitimate electors for the state, co-conspirator one 
orchestrated an event at a hotel in Gettysburg attended by state legislators. Co-conspirator one falsely claimed that Pennsylvania had issued 1.8 million absentee ballots and received 2.5 million in return, more votes than ba- more votes, more ballots than voters. In the days thereafter, a campaign staffer wrote internally that co-conspirator one's allegation was quote just wrong and quote there's no way to defend it. The deputy campaign manager responded, quote, we have been saying this for a while. It's very frustrating, unquote. Paragraph 44. On December 4th, after four Republican leaders of the Pennsylvania legislature issued a public statement that the General Assembly lacked the authority to overturn the popular vote and appoint its own slate of electors, and that doing so would violate the state election code and constitution, the defendant retweeted a post labeling the legislators cowards. Paragraph 45. On December 31st and January 3rd, the defendant repeatedly raised with the acting attorney general and acting deputy attorney general the allegation that in Pennsylvania there had been 205,000 more votes than voters. Each time, the Justice Department officials informed the defendant that his claim was false. On January 6, 2021, the defendant publicly repeated his knowingly false claim that there had been 205,000 more votes than voters in Pennsylvania. Wisconsin. Paragraph 47. On November 29, 2020, a recount in Wisconsin that the defendant's campaign had petitioned and paid for did not change the election result and, in fact, increased the defendant's margin of defeat. Paragraph 48. On December 14th, the Wisconsin Supreme Court rejected an election challenge by the campaign. One justice wrote, quote, Nothing in this case casts any legitimate doubt that the people of Wisconsin lawfully chose Vice President Biden and Senator Harris to be the next leaders of our great country, unquote. Paragraph 49. On December 21st, as a result of the state Supreme Court's decision, the Wisconsin governor, who had signed a certificate of ascertainment on November 30th, identifying Biden's electors as the state's legitimate electors, signed a certificate of final determination in which he recognized that the state Supreme Court had resolved a controversy regarding the appointment of Biden's electors and confirmed that Biden had received the highest number of votes in the state and that his electors were the state's legitimate electors. Paragraph 50. That same day, in response to the court decision that had prompted the Wisconsin governor to sign a certificate of final determination, the defendant, remember the defendant is Trump, the defendant issued a tweet repeating his knowingly false claim of election fraud and demanding that the Wisconsin legislature overturn the election results that had led to the ascertainment of Biden's electors as legitimate electors. Paragraph 51, on December 27th, the defendant raised with the acting attorney general and acting deputy attorney general a specific fraud claim that there had been more votes than voters in Wisconsin. The acting deputy attorney general informed the defendant that the claim was false. In paragraph 52, on January 6th, 2021, the defendant publicly repeated knowingly false claims that there had been tens of thousands of unlawful votes in Wisconsin. 
We'll skip ahead now to a section that lays out some of the allegations in the so-called fake elector scheme and then goes on to how Trump, as president, allegedly tried to use his powers as president to get the United States Justice Department to use its power to assist in the fraud. Reading this section will be on the media's Michael Lowinger, as some of you know. Some of Micah's reporting on the run-up to January 6th was so revealing that he actually got called as a witness at the seditious conspiracy trial of members of the Oath Keepers. If you're following along at home, this begins on page 26 of the indictment. Micah, we're all ears. Thanks for having me, Brian. All right, this is paragraph 65. On December 14th, the legitimate electors of all 50 states and the District of Columbia met in their respective jurisdictions to formally cast votes, their votes for president, resulting in a total of 232 electoral votes for the defendant and 306 for Biden. The the legitimate electoral votes that Biden won in the states that that the defendant targeted and the defendant's margin of defeat were as follows. Arizona. 11 electoral votes, 10,457 votes. Georgia, 16 electoral votes, 11,779 votes. Michigan, 16 electoral votes, 154,188 votes. Nevada, 6 electoral votes, 33,596 votes. New Mexico, 5 electoral votes, 99,720 votes. Pennsylvania, 20 electoral votes, 80,555 votes, and Wisconsin, 10 electoral votes, 20,682 votes. Paragraph 66. On the same day, at the direction of the defendant and co-conspirator one, fraudulent electors convened sham proceedings in the seven targeted states to cast fraudulent electoral ballots in the favor of the defendant. In some states, in order to satisfy legal requirements set forth for legitimate electors under state law, state officials were enlisted to provide the fraudulent electors access to state capitol buildings so that they could gather and vote there. In many cases, however, as co-conspirator 5 had predicted in the fraudulent elector instructions, the fraudulent electors were unable to satisfy the legal requirements. Nonetheless, as directed in the fraudulent elector instructions, Shortly after the fraudulent electors met on December 14th, the targeted state's fraudulent elector certificates were mailed to the president of the Senate, the archivist of the United States, and others. The defendant and co-conspirators ultimately used the certificates of these fraudulent electors to deceitfully target the government function and did so contrary to how fraudulent electors were told they would be used. We're on to paragraph 68. Unlike those of the fraudulent electors, consistent with the ECA, the legitimate electors signed certificates were annexed to the state executive's certificates of ascertainment before being sent to the president of the Senate and others. That evening, at 6.26 p.m., the RNC chairwoman forwarded to the defendant through his executive assistant an email titled, quote, Electors Recap Final, which represented that in quote, six contested states, that's Arizona, Georgia, Michigan, Nevada, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, the defendant's electors had voted in parallel to Biden's electors. The defendant's executive assistant responded, quote, it's in front of him, and there's an exclamation point there. (laughs) 
We're on to a new section, which is titled The Defendant's Attempt to Leverage the Justice Department to Use Deceit to Get State Officials to Replace Legitimate Electors and Electoral Votes with the Defendants. Paragraph 70. In late December 2020, the defendant attempted to use the Justice Department to make knowingly false claims of election fraud to officials in the targeted states through a formal letter under the acting attorney general's signature, thus giving the defendant's lies the backing of the federal government and attempting to improperly influence the targeted states to replace legitimate Biden electors with the defendants. On December 22nd, the defendant met with co-conspirator four at the White House. Co-conspirator four had not informed his leadership at the Justice Department of this meeting, which was a violation of the Justice Department's written policy restricting contacts with the White House to guard against improper political influence. On December 26th, co-conspirator four spoke on the phone with the acting attorney general and lied about the circumstances of his meeting with the defendant at the White House, falsely claiming that the meeting had been unplanned. The acting attorney general directed co-conspirator four not to have unauthorized contacts with the White House again, and co-conspirator four said he would not. The next morning, on December 27th, contrary to the acting attorney general's direction, co-conspirator four spoke with the defendant on the defendant's cell phone for nearly three minutes. That afternoon, the defendant called the acting attorney general and acting deputy attorney general and said, among other things, quote, people tell me co-conspirator four is great. I should put him in. Of course, where we just heard co-conspirator four, that is not what was said in the call uh, verbatim. The defendant also raised multiple false claims of election fraud, which the acting attorney general and acting, acting deputy attorney general refuted. When the acting attorney general told the defendant that the Justice Department could not and would not change the outcome of the election, the defendant responded, quote, just say that the election was corrupt and leave the rest to me and the Republican congressman, end quote. Paragraph 75. On December 28th, co-conspirator four sent a draft letter to the acting attorney general and acting deputy attorney general, which he proposed they all sign. The draft was addressed to the state officials in Georgia, and co-conspirator four proposed sending versions of the letter to elected officials in other targeted states. The proposed letter, which contained numerous knowingly false claims about the election and the Justice Department, including that, and there are three subsections here. A, that the Justice Department had, quote, identified significant concerns that may have impacted the outcome of the election in multiple states. B, the Justice Department believed that in Georgia and other states, two valid slate of, slates of electors had gathered at the proper location on December 14th and that both sets of ballots had been transmitted to Congress. That is, co-conspirator four's letter sought to advance the defendant's fraudulent elector plan by using the authority of the Justice Department to falsely present fraudulent electors as a valid alternative to the legitimate electors. C, the Justice Department urged that the state legislature convene a special legislative session to create the opportunity to, among other things, choose the fraudulent electors over the legitimate electors. Paragraph 76. The acting deputy attorney general promptly responded to co-conspirator four 
by email and told him that his proposed letter was false, writing, quote, Despite dramatic claims to the contrary, we have not seen the type of fraud that calls into question the reported and certified results of the election, end quote. In a meeting shortly thereafter, the acting attorney general and acting deputy attorney general again directed co-conspirator four not to have unauthorized contact with the White House. And that, dear listener, was WNYC's Michael Lowinger from On the Media reading that portion of the indictment. Mike, a great job. Thanks a lot for lending your voice. We'll hear you on OTM. Thank you. And again, just to recap a little bit, because uh, we are skipping the end of that section, but I think that was enough for you to get a very healthy impression of a very important section of the indictment that was called the defendant's attempt to leverage the Justice Department to use deceit to get state officials to replace legitimate electors and electoral votes with the defendants. Our next guest reader is Ellie Mistal, Justice Correspondent for The Nation magazine, host of the podcast Contempt of Court, and author of the book Allow Me to Retort, A Black Guy's Guide to the Constitution. Ellie's going to read part of the long section of the indictment that details how Trump and his co-conspirators allegedly broke the law in the course of pressuring Vice President Mike Pence to join their scheme and refuse to certify Joe Biden of, uh, uh, on January 6th. This section of the indictment is really interesting, partly for how specifically chronological it is following Trump and his alleged co-conspirators' ongoing pressure on Pence on many specific days after the election. As we will hear at the start, that even included Christmas Day for the religious Mike Pence. Um, Ellie, hi. And just before you read, I have to take care of a little bit of housekeeping and read our our legal ID for uh, close to the top of the hour. I just wanted to say hi. Hello. How are you doing, Brian? Thank you so much for doing this. I think it's a real public service. And just to be clear, this is the part of the indictment. You were asking your listeners tell you what mm -hmm. they heard was new today. Mm -hmm. This is the part of the indictment that was new to me because the vice president didn't testify in front of the January 6th committee, but he did testify to Jack Smith's grand jury. All right. Uh, that's even more reason for us to listen. If Ellie Mistal found it new as deeply as he reads into this stuff all the time, uh, I'm sure many of us will too. Ellie, take it away. Starting with paragraph 90, section A. On December 25th, when the vice president called the defendant to wish him a Merry Christmas, the defendant quickly turned the conversation to January 6th and his request that the vice president reject electoral votes that day. The vice president pushed back, telling the defendant, as the vice president had already done in previous conversations, you know, I don't think I have the authority to change the outcome. B, on December 29th, as reflected in the vice president's contemporaneous notes, the defendant falsely told the vice president that the Justice Department was finding major infractions. C. On January 1st, the defendant called the vice president and berated him because he had learned that the vice president had opposed a lawsuit seeking a judicial decision that, at the certification, the vice president had the authority to reject or return votes to the states under the Constitution. The vice president responded that he thought there was no constitutional basis for such authority and that it was improper. 
In response, the defendant told the vice president, you're too honest. Within hours of the conversation, the defendant reminded his supporters to meet in Washington before the certification proceeding, tweeting, the big protest rally in Washington, D.C. will take place at 11 a.m. on January 6th. Locational details to follow. Stop the steal. D. On January 3rd, the defendant again told the vice president that at the certification proceeding, the vice president had the absolute right to reject electoral votes and the ability to overturn the election. The vice president responded that he had no such authority and that a federal appeals court had rejected the lawsuit, making that claim the previous day. Paragraph 91. On January 3rd, co-conspirator 2, edit note, I believe this to be John Eastman. On January 3rd, co-conspirator 2 circulated a second memorandum that included a new plan under which Contrary to the Electoral College Act, the vice president would send the elector slates to the state legislatures to determine which slate to count. 92. On January 4, the defendant held a meeting with co-conspirator 2, the vice president, the vice president's chief of staff, and the vice president's counsel for the purpose of convincing the vice president, based on the defendant's knowingly false claims of election fraud, that the vice president should reject or send to the states Biden's legitimate electoral votes rather than count them. The defendant deliberately excluded his White House counsel from the meeting because the White House counsel previously had pushed back on the defendant's false claims of election fraud. Paragraph 93. During the meeting, as reflected in the vice president's contemporaneous notes, the defendant made knowingly false claims of election fraud, including, bottom line, we won every state by hundreds of thousands of votes, and we won every state, and asked regarding a claim his senior Justice Department officials previously had told him was false, includingly as, including as recently as the night before, what about... 205,000 votes more in Pennsylvania than voters. The defendant and co-conspirator too then asked the vice president to either unilaterally reject the legitimate electors from the seven targeted states or send the question of which slate was legitimate to the targeted state's legislatures. When the vice president challenged co-conspirator two on whether the proposal to return the question to the states was defensible, co-conspirator two responded, well, nobody's tested it before. The vice president then told the defendant, did you hear that? Even your own counsel is not saying I have that authority. The defendant responded, that's okay. I prefer the other suggestion of the vice president rejecting electors unilaterally. Paragraph 94. Also on January 4th, when co-conspirator 2 acknowledged to the defendant's senior advisor that no court would support his proposal, the senior advisor told co-conspirator 2, you're going to cause riots in the streets. Co-conspirator 2 responded that there had previously been points 
in the nation's history where violence was necessary to protect the Republic. After that conversation, the senior advisor notified, notified the defendant that co-conspirator two had conceded that his plan was not going to work. Again, we believe, edit note, we believe co-conspirator two to be John Eastman. Paragraph 95, on the morning of January 5th, at the defendant's direction, the vice president's chief of staff and the vice president's counsel met again with co-conspirator two. Co-conspirator two now advocated that the vice president do what the defendant had said he preferred the day before, unilaterally reject electors from targeted states. During this meeting, Co-conspirator 2 privately acknowledged to the vice president's counsel that he hoped to prevent judicial review of his proposal because he understood that it would be unanimously rejected by the Supreme Court. The vice president's counsel expressed to Co-conspirator 2 that following through with the proposal would result in a disastrous situation where the election might have to be decided in the streets. Paragraph 96. That same day, the defendant encouraged supporters to travel to Washington on January 6th, and he set the false expectation that the vice president had the authority to and might use his ceremonial role at the certification proceeding to reverse the election outcome in the defendant's favor, including issuing the following tweets. A. At 11.06 a.m., the vice president has the power to reject fraudulently chosen electors. This was within 40 minutes of the defendant's earlier reminder, see you in D.C. B. At 5.05 p.m., Washington is being inundated with people who don't want to see an election victory stolen. Our country has had enough. They won't take it anymore. We hear you and love you from the Oval Office. C, at 5.43 p.m. I will be speaking at the Save America rally tomorrow at the Ellipse at 11 a.m. Arrive early. Doors open at 7 a.m. Eastern. Big crowds! Paragraph 97. On January 5th, the defendant met alone with the vice president. When the vice president refused to agree to the defendant's request that he obstruct the certification, the defendant grew frustrated and told the vice president that the, that the defendant would have to publicly criticize him. Upon learning of this, the vice president's chief of staff was concerned for the vice president's safety and alerted the head of the vice president's secret service detail. Paragraph 98. As crowds began to gather in Washington and were audible from the Oval Office, the defendant remarked to his advisors that the crowd on the following day on January 6th was going to be angry. Paragraph 99. That night, the defendant approved and caused the defendant's campaign to issue a public statement that the defendant knew from his meeting with the vice president only hours earlier was false. The vice president and I are in total agreement that the vice president has the power 
to act. And that, dear listeners, was Ellie Mistal, Justice Correspondent for The Nation, host of the podcast Contempt of Court, and author of the book Allow Me to Retort. And Ellie, I want to allow you to retort um, a little bit and annotate just a bit of what we heard. I want to draw a little bit of attention to that last line that you just read from paragraph 99, the quote that was attributed to Trump after all that evidence that Pence kept saying, no, I don't have the power to overturn the election, that Trump went public and said, the vice president and I are in total agreement that the vice president has the power to act. Did you know about that quote before? I, I knew that he had said that. I didn't know all of the lead up to it, right? So like I knew that he had made that uh, statement that he fa- falsely that the, Pence had the power to do something. I didn't know that he was meeting with Pence you know, hours before where Pence was telling him he didn't have that authority. And that quote, that line, that statement, Brian, that's what put Mike Pence's life at risk. That's why those people showed up on January 6th with gallows waiting to hang Mike Pence. It's that lie that's at the central part of this conspiracy to obstruct the process um, that not only kind of makes a lot of the prosecution's case, that Trump's intent was to obstruct um, the, the, t- the vote tabulation, the, ver- the vote certification on January 6th. But it also makes the moral case that Trump was trying to get Mike Pence hurt. Hmm. Anything else that was new to you there uh, since you had said before you went into the reading that you found a number of things from the Mike Pen- Pence section of the indictment new to you? Yeah, I mean, the you're too honest line, that's just, whoo! I mean, that, because, and not just from a kind of uh, a schadenfreude uh, situation. Like, again, part of this case is that you have to prove that Trump knew what he was doing was fraud, right? And so when he says directly to, the, to Mike Pence, you're too honest, that is a real clear indication that Trump knows that he's a liar and that he is trying to lie to defraud the American people. So that is big. And again, just because all of this comes from either Pence directly or Pence's chief of staff, staff directly, the fact that they were taking contemporaneous notes, which is what I think everybody who ever talks to Donald Trump should do, right, <laughs> to, mm. to defend themselves, um, and that obviously Smith has these notes, this is going to be, I think, whenever this goes to trial, this is going to be a big day when Pence and the chief of staff um, testify um, to what is what is said here in the indictment, that's going to be huge against Trump. And we remember from the firing of Jim Comey way back near the beginning of the Trump administration that Comey, realizing early on what kind of a player Trump was, was taking contemporaneous notes uh, after his various meetings with Trump. So people will remember that perhaps about Jim Comey. This is a revelation, I think, that Mike Pence, as vice president, was doing that, too. Yeah. I mean, look, if I if Trump asked me to get him a sandwich, I would wear a wire. I mean, like there's, <laughs> like you you need to document what this man is telling you. And, and, and you know, look, Mike Pence does not deserve any credit for how he has handled himself after this. He could have been a leader in holding Trump accountable. Instead, he was a coward in holding Trump accountable. But I will give him credit that if his resistance to doing what Trump wanted him to do on January 6th 
same democracy in some like it, it's 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 critical it's critical and you can imagine a different vice president not standing up to him in this particular you know even if it's the if it's the only good thing mike pence did in his life it was a good day he had a good day on january 6th he did the right thing and other vice presidents maybe wouldn't have done that so i give him credit for that part yeah and to me there are three big quotes they're each short but big that jump out to me is perhaps the three um biggest lines in this whole 45 page indictment having read the whole thing now the the two of them that you just cited from this Pence section where Trump is quoted after Pence says he doesn't have the authority, Trump is quoted as saying to him, you're too honest. The one that I mentioned earlier of Rudy Giuliani uh, trying to convince the Arizona state legislature to flip the election results there and the speaker of the Arizona House telling him, well, show me the evidence. And Giuliani saying, well, I don't have the evidence, but we have theories. Um, and then that quote at the end that we were just talking about, where Trump, right after talking to the vice president and the vice president disagreeing that he has the authority, Trump going public and saying the vice president and I are in total agreement that the vice president has the power to act. Just tell me one more thing uh, from you as a legal analyst, and listeners were obviously pausing a little bit for some analysis with Ellie Mistal because of what he does for a living, and we will do it again after the final section coming up with legal analyst Jill Wine-Banks, former Watergate prosecutor. Um, but these quotes, do they have to somehow prove them in court? Can they prove that they were stated in these contexts in court. I don't know that any of these three things that I just cited are on tape, and I imagine Trump will deny them and Giuliani will deny them. Yeah, I mean, that's why we have a jury system, right? Like, they'll, the, the, they'll have the quote. They'll have witnesses to testify to those quotes. They'll have the contemporaneous notes. They will have the credibility of their witnesses versus the credibility of Trump's witnesses. Who's like, I didn't say that. But, Brian, remember... For Trump to say, I didn't say that, he's got to get on the stand, right? And and I don't think Donald Trump wants to get on the stand. <laughs> I don't think if I was Donald Trump's lawyer, I would advise him to get on the stand. So mm. impeaching the credibility of the prosecution's witnesses can't just come from the lawyers, right? It's got to come from Trump, from Giuliani, from somebody taking the stand and saying, I did not say that. And Brian, I just don't think that Trump or Giuliani or any of these people are going to take the stand and open themselves up mm -hmm. to cross-examination mm. just to rebut the testimony here. So I think these statements are going to lie kind of in the trial itself, and it will come down to whether or not the jury finds the prosecution's witnesses credible. Ellie Mustal, thanks a lot. Thanks so much for doing this, Brian. Continuing the reading... Uh, we now get to January 6th itself. And this is still in the Mike Pence section. I'll read a little bit of this before we bring on Jill Weinbanks. This is paragraph 100 from the indictment. On January 6th, starting in the early morning hours, the defendant again turned to knowingly false statements aimed at pressuring the vice president to fraudulently alter the election outcome and raised publicly the false expectation that the vice president might do so. Letter A. At 1 a.m., the defendant issued a tweet that falsely claimed, quote, if President 
uh, if Vice President Mike Pence comes through for us, we will win the presidency. Many states want to decertify the mistake they made in certifying incorrect and even fraudulent numbers in a process not approved by their state legislatures, which it must be. Mike can send it back. That's at one o'clock in the morning. Letter B, at 8.17 a.m., the defendant issued a tweet that falsely stated, quote, states want to correct their votes, which they now know are based on irregularities and fraud, plus corrupt process never received legislative approval. All Mike Pence has to do is send them back to the states and we win. And that's in caps. And we win. Do it, Mike. This is a time for extreme courage, unquote, from that tweet. Paragraph 101. On the morning of January 6th, an agent of the defendant contacted a United States senator to ask him to hand deliver documents to the vice president. The agent then facilitated the receipt by the senator's staff of the fraudulent certificates signed by the defendant's fraudulent electors in Michigan and Wisconsin, which were believed not to have been delivered to the vice president or archivist by mail. When one of the senator's staffers contacted a staffer for the vice president by text message to arrange for delivery of what the senator's staffer had been told were alternate slates of electors for Michigan and Wisconsin because archivists didn't receive them, the vice president's staffer rejected them. Paragraph 102. At 11.15 a.m., and again, this is on January 6th, At 11.15 a.m., the defendant called the vice president and again pressured him to fraudulently reject or return Biden's legitimate electoral votes. The vice president again refused. Immediately after the call, the defendant decided to single out the vice president in public remarks he would make within the hour, reinserting language that he had personally drafted earlier that morning, falsely claiming that the vice president had authority to send electoral votes to the states, but that advisors had previously successfully advocated he removed. He put it back in. Paragraph 103. Earlier that morning, the defendant had selected co-conspirator two to join co-conspirator one, Giuliani, in giving public remarks before his own. When they did so, based on knowingly false election fraud claims, co-conspirator one and co-conspirator two intensified pressure on the vice president to fraudulently obstruct the certification proceedings. Letter A, co-conspirator one said, uh, told the crowd that the vice president could, quote, cast the ECA, the Electoral Count Act, aside and unilaterally, quote, decide on the validity of these crooked ballots, unquote. He also lied when he claimed to, quote, have letters from five legislatures begging us, unquote, begging us to send elector slates to the legislatures for review and called for, quote, trial by combat. Many of you heard that Giuliani uh, soundbite from January 6th, called for trial by combat. B, co-conspirator two told the crowd, all we are demanding of Vice President Pence is this afternoon at one o'clock, he let the legislatures of the states look into this so we get to the bottom of it and the American people know whether we have control of the direction of our government or not. It continues, the defendant also said that regular rules no longer applied, stating 
And fraud breaks up everything, doesn't it? When you catch somebody in a fraud, you're allowed to go by very different rules, unquote, from Trump. Letter D. Finally, after exhorting that we fight, we fight like hell, and if you don't fight like hell, you're not going to have a country anymore, the defendant directed the people in front of him to head to the Capitol, suggested he was going with them, and told them to give members of Congress, quote, the kind of pride and boldness that they need to take back our country, unquote. Paragraph 105, it's just one sentence. During and after the defendant's remarks, thousands of people marched toward the Capitol. All right. And now we get to the final section of the 45-page indictment, the section that alleges ways that Trump and his co-conspirators broke federal laws even after the violence began on January 6th afternoon. Our final guest reader, who will also stay on afterwards for some analysis and to help take reactions from you on the phones, is Jill Wine-Banks, former Watergate prosecutor, author of the book The Watergate Girl, host of the podcasts Sisters in Law and iGen Politics, and an MSNBC legal analyst. Jill, thanks so much for doing this with us. The floor is yours. Thank you, Brian. This is a really exciting way to make sure that everyone has the benefit of reading the indictment, which reads like a novel. And the part I'm reading is about the defendant's exploitation of the violence and chaos at the Capitol. And it starts with paragraph 106. Shortly before 1 p.m., the vice president issued a public statement explaining that his role as president of the Senate at the certification proceeding that was about to begin did not include, quote, unilateral authority to determine which electoral votes should be counted and which should not, close quote. Paragraph 107, before the defendant had finished speaking, a crowd began to gather at the Capitol. Thereafter, a mass of people, including individuals who had traveled to Washington and to the Capitol at the defendant's direction, broke through barriers, cordoning off the Capitol grounds, and advanced on the building, including by violently attacking law enforcement officers trying to secure it. Paragraph 107, the defendant, a.k.a. Donald J. Trump. I added the a.k.a just to remind you who the defendant is, who had returned to the White House after concluding his remarks, watched events at the Capitol unfold on the television in the dining room next to the Oval Office. Paragraph 109, at 2.13 p.m., after more than an hour of steady, violent advancement, the crowd at the Capitol broke into the building. Paragraph 110, Upon receiving news that individuals had breached the Capitol, the defendant's advisors told him that there was a riot there and that rioters had breached the building. When advisors urged the defendant to issue a calming message aimed at the rioters, the defendant refused, instead repeatedly remarking that the people at the Capitol were angry because the election had been stolen. Paragraph 111. At 2.24 p.m., after advisors had left the defendant alone in his dining room, the defendant issued a tweet intended to further delay and obstruct the certification. 
quote, Mike Pence didn't have the courage to do what should have been done to protect our country and our Constitution, giving states a chance to certify a corrected set of facts, not the fraudulent or inaccurate ones which they were asked to previously certify. USA demands the truth, exclamation mark, close quotes. Paragraph 112, one minute later at 2.25 p.m., the United States Secret Service was forced to evacuate the vice president to a secure location. Paragraph 113, at the Capitol throughout the afternoon, members of the crowd chanted, quote, hang Mike Pence. Where is Pence? Bring him out and traitor Pence, close quote. Paragraph 114, the defendant repeatedly refused to approve a message directing rioters to leave the Capitol as urged by his most senior advisors, including the White House counsel, a deputy White House counsel, the chief of staff, a deputy chief of staff, and a senior advisor. Instead, the defendant issued two tweets that did not ask rioters to leave the Capitol, but instead falsely suggested that the crowd at the Capitol was being peaceful including the following tweets at 2.15 p.m., quote, please support our Capitol Police and law enforcement. They are truly on the side of our country. Stay peaceful, close quote. Subparagraph B, at 3.13 p.m., the defendant tweeted, quote, I am asking for everyone at the U.S. Capitol to remain peaceful. No violence. Remember, we are the party of law and order. Respect the law and our great men and women in blue. Thank you, close quote. Paragraph 115. At 3 p.m., the defendant had a phone call with the minority leader of the United States Representatives, of the United States House of Representatives. The defendant told the minority leader that the crowd at the Capitol was more upset about the election than the minority leader was. Paragraph 118, at 4.17 p.m., the defendant released a video message on Twitter that he had just taped in the White House Rose Garden. In it, the defendant repeated the knowingly false claim that, quote, we had an election that was stolen from us, close quote, and finally asked individuals to leave the Capitol while telling them they were, quote, very special, close quote, and that, quote, we love you, close quote. Paragraph 117. After the 4.17 p.m. tweet, as the defendant joined others in the outer Oval Office to watch the attack on the Capitol on television, the defendant said, and I'm quoting, see, this is what happens when they try to steal an election. These people are angry. These people are really angry about it. This is what happens, end quote. Paragraph 118, at 6.01 p.m., the defendant tweeted, quote, these are the things and events that happen when a sacred landslide election victory is so unceremoniously and viciously stripped away from great patriots who have been badly and unfairly treated for so long. Go home with love and in peace. Remember this day forever, close quote. Paragraph 119, on the evening of January 6th, the defendant and co-conspirator one, Rudy Giuliani, 
attempted to exploit the violence and chaos at the Capitol by calling lawmakers to convince them, based on knowingly false claims of election fraud, to delay the certification, including A, the defendant through White House aides attempted to reach two United States senators at 6 p.m. B, from 6.59 p.m. until 7.18, co-conspirator one placed calls to five United States senators and one United States representative. C, co-conspirator six attempted to confirm phone numbers for six United States senators whom the defendant had directed co-conspirator one to call and attempt to elicit in further delaying the certification. Subparagraph D, in one of the calls, Co-conspirator one left a voicemail intended for a United States senator that said, quote, we need you, our Republican friends, to try to just slow it down so we can get these legislators to get more information to you. And I know they're reconvening at 8 p.m. tonight, but the only strategy we can follow is to object to numerous states and raise issues so that we get ourselves into tomorrow, ideally into the end of the day tomorrow. Subparagraph E. In another message intended for another United States senator, co-conspirator one repeated knowingly false allegations of election fraud, including that the vote counts certified by the states to Congress were incorrect and that the governors who had certified knew they were incorrect, that illegal immigrants had voted in substantial numbers in Arizona, and that, quote, Georgia gave you a number in which 65,000 people who were underage voted, close quote. Co-conspirator one also claimed to the vice president's, co-conspirator one also claimed that the vice president's actions had been surprising and asked the senator to, quote, object to every state and kind of spread this out a little bit like a filibuster, end quote. Paragraph 120, at 7.01 p.m., while co-conspirator one was calling United States senators on behalf of the defendant, the White House counsel called the defendant to ask him to withdraw any objections and allow the certification. The defendant refused. Paragraph 121, the attack on the Capitol obstructed and delayed the certification for approximately six hours until the Senate and House of Representatives came back into se session separately at 8.06 p.m. and 9.02 2 p.m. respectively, and came together in a joint session at 11.35 p.m. Paragraph 122, at 11.44 p.m., co-conspirator 2, John Eastman, emailed the vice president's counsel advocating that the vice president violate the law and seek further delay of the certification. Co-conspirator 2 wrote, quote, I implore you to consider one more relatively minor violation of the Electoral College Act and adjourn for 10 days to allow the legislatures to finish their investigations, as well as to allow a full forensic audit of the massive amount of illegal activity that has occurred here. Close quote. Paragraph 123. At 3.41 a.m. on January 7, as president of the Senate, the vice president announced the certified results of the 2020 presidential election in favor of Biden. At 3.41 a.m., most Americans still awake, watching the end of the proceedings, 
exhaled as the peaceful transition of power was maintained, if only by a thread, and with considerable injury and even loss of life. That's my annotation to the end of the 45-page indictment, as that narrative does end, as we just heard from Jill Weinbanks at 3.41 a.m. Jill reading from the dramatic final section of the indictment of Donald Trump, detailing what he and his co-conspirators allegedly did even after the violence and successful obstruction of the Senate proceedings began on January 6, 2021, through to the end of the sequence of events at 3.41 a.m. on January 7th. Jill, thanks for lending your clear-as-a-bell, Chicago-infused voice for that reading. (laughs) Thank you very much, Brian. It was a great section to get to read because... You didn't have to add very much drama right. to see the drama of the events unfolding and the corruption that was going on in the White House. It's really terrifying. And there's one particular statement that I'm going to go back with you to after a break. Uh, from near the end of that narrative, we will hold that as a little bit of a mystery for the moment as to what that is. And now we'll discuss some of what we've been hearing with former Watergate prosecutor Jill Wine-Banks and with you on the phones, what jumped out at you from hearing any part of the indictment read out loud in detail like that during the show. What did you learn this morning that you did not already know? So, Jill, you've been following all this closely since the 2020 election as a commentator and former Watergate prosecutor. Did special counsel Jack Smith present in this indictment much that's new to you? Well, I have been following it very closely, and I would say that there are parts here that I went, yikes. And one of those is, for example, on page 23 and 24 of the uh, indictment. And I don't know whether that's already been read, but it's the part where it says co-conspirator five and co-conspirator, well, it's on December 8th. Co-conspirator five called the Arizona attorney general, who we all heard testify and who was very dramatic in his testimony. Um, uh, And in an email after the call, the Arizona attorney recounted his conversation with co-conspirator five as follows. I just talked to the gentleman who did that memo, which is co-conspirator five. His idea is basically that all of us, Georgia, Wisconsin, Arizona, Pennsylvania, et cetera, have our election, our electors send in their votes, even though the votes aren't legal under federal law because they're not signed by the governor. So the members of Congress can fight about whether they should be counted on January 6th. So, and it goes on and on, but the fact that they have that level of detail and that they have the vice president's contemporaneous notes, that's another thing that, of course, we didn't know that they had his notes, that he was that cooperative, that he gave them his notes. I think it's it's really um, it's really a well done speaking indictment that lets people know exactly what was happening in a, uh, a a chronological order that they can easily follow and feel like they're witnessing what was happening as they planned this coup and executed it. Luckily, yeah. unsuccessfully. The, the Arizona section uh, was also particularly compelling to me. We did pull out the Arizona section as one of the parts that we read in full earlier in the show. So I'm glad you circled back to that. 
in fact, one of the quotes that I said earlier that I think is one of the big three quotes from the whole 45-page indictment was when co-conspirator one, Giuliani, um, is reported in the indictment to have said to the Speaker of the Arizona House when pressed for evidence of voter fraud that would lead them to not certify the vote, he said, we don't have the evidence, but we have lots of theories. Yes. And whoa, you know. Um, And this, this brings me to another thing that I want to ask you in kind of a general way that I think is of interest to a lot of New Yorkers in our audience, and that is just how much former Mayor Rudy Giuliani appears as co-conspirator one in charge after charge, state after state. How, how central was Rudy Giuliani to this alleged plot after you've read the whole indictment? And was, was that extent new to you in any way? Um, I don't think so. I think there were a lot of indicators of his centrality. Um, his public face in this was quite dramatic. His uh, subsequent disbarment as a result of filing fraudulent lawsuits and lying to the court um, has already been pretty much well known. So I wasn't really surprised at that. But seeing the level of detail and the evidence against him, um, and I don't know, again, whether you've discussed this or not, but I believe that the six co-conspirators, five of whom we know, the sixth were, they deliberately, I guess, left it vague. And I don't know why they left it vague. Maybe, Brian, you have a theory on why he wasn't, he or she wasn't Mm -hmm. identified in the same way that the others were clearly identified. But I think that all of them will be indicted. Some of them may end up pleading and trying to cooperate to lower their penalty for their crimes. But the crimes laid out here by these co-conspirators are so significant and so plentiful that it would be derelict not to pursue them in court. And the reason they're named Mm -hmm. here but not elsewhere, in my Mm -hmm. opinion, uh, and not indicted here, is that Jack Smith wanted this to go to trial in a speedy way. And a trial of one person can go forward much more quickly. And these people can be indicted in a separate indictment and tried separately. And in fact, if they were indicted here, the first motion that all of their defense lawyers would make is to sever their case because of the publicity that will be intended upon the former president's trial and the complications of his trial, that they would want to be tried separately. It might be denied, um, and it could end up being a a grounds for mistrial of them or for having them reversed on appeal and retried. Mm -hmm. So I, I think... It's a good thing that they are not in this indictment, but I hope they will be indicted. So would you expect them not to be indicted until after the trial of Donald Trump, which presumably will happen at some point, takes place? No, they can be indicted anytime separately, and their case will proceed on a separate trial docket. They will have their own lawyers that will not inconvenience the defendant or his lawyers, and they're can be hired enough lawyers for the special prosecutor to have enough lawyers to try them simultaneously or seriatim with the defendant, Donald Trump. Let me just mention 
two other instances where Giuliani's name comes up uh, in this, again, because I think his role is of particular interest to New Yorkers, um, where it's, you know, it's almost unbelievable to me some of the things that he was at least allegedly doing here. This goes back to paragraph 60 in the indictment, which is in the part that's explaining the false elector scheme. And again, remember, Giuliani is identified here as co-conspirator one, and this says, December 11th through co-conspirator five, co-conspirator one suggested that the Arizona lawyer file a petition for certiorari in the Supreme Court as a pretext to claim that litigation was pending in the state to provide cover for the convening and voting of the defendant's fraudulent electors there. In other words, Jill, Giuliani was recommending that they file something with the Supreme Court, not necessarily because they had a case, but so that they could use that politically to say, oh, there's litigation pending, therefore we can't go forward with this election. You have it exactly correct. And in my copy of the indictment, I have pretext underlined and circled (laughs) and to provide cover underlined, as well as the sentence that follows what you read, which is co-conspirator five explained that co-conspirator one had heard from a state official and state provisional elector that, quote, it could appear treasonous for the Arizona electors to vote on Monday if there is no pending court proceeding. So again, it just emphasizes that they knew that there was nothing legitimate about this, but they were, again, just as the president said, you know, just say it. It doesn't matter if you do it. I just need this cover. He said that in connection with his first impeachment in the call to Zelensky. He said it in connection with this, which is, you know, just do it so that I can work with the Republicans in Congress to get this done. Mm, So it was all a show. It was all a pretext, all a pretense. And one final Giuliani thing I said before the break, I was going to come back to a part of the reading that you did uh, from the exploitation of the violence on January 6th, final section of the indictment. So part of what you read was that co-conspirator one, this is paragraph 119, item D, co-conspirator one left a voicemail intended for a United States senator that said, quote, we need you, our Republican friends, to try to just slow it down so we can get these legislatures to get more information to you. And I know they're reconvening at eight tonight, meaning the Senate after the uh, the violence at the Capitol. But the only strategy we can follow is to object to numerous states and raise issues so that we get ourselves into tomorrow, ideally until the end of tomorrow. So talk about exploiting the violence. They were trying to use that pause, Giuliani was, to get the process slowed down till the end of January 7th. Right. And I would say that when you said they were trying to, they were doing, they were, uh, it, it wasn't just trying to use the, the violence and the chaos. They used the gap created by that to make these phone calls, to do anything they could to, to stop the counting of the legitimate votes that they knew were legitimate. They had talked to governors who had all said this is legitimate. And they lied to the fake electors saying to at least some of them, 
we will only use this if there is a legitimate reason to use it. That wasn't their intent at all. They intended to use it to create more chaos and more disillusionment and to have time to challenge and delay. And there is a time limit in the Constitution that this vote has to happen. So they they really were acting knowingly and corruptly in doing everything they did. Now to some of what our callers learned by hearing sections of the indictment read this morning. Knox and Yonkers, you're on WNYC. Hello, Knox. Hi. Yeah, no, uh, I, sorry. Like the whole thing with Mike Pence, that was crazy. Like I thought, I knew that Mike Pence had been pressured like a little bit, but I didn't realize the extent to it, like all the way out to Christmas beforehand. Like, he, he was getting all this pressure, but, like, I, I wouldn't exactly call Pence a coward in this because Pence, is, Pence saved democracy here. Like, I don't like Pence. Like, I'm a trans person in the United States. I do not like Pence. But, he, like, if he hadn't done what he did then, we'd be screwed. Knox, thank you very much for your call. Yeah, I think it was a revelation to a lot of people just how many times on how many days in the timeline that the indictment laid out, uh, Trump tried to pressure Pence or convince him to go along. Scott in Westfield, Indiana, you're on WNYC. Hi, Scott. Hey, thanks for doing this reading. Um, Very informative. One thing that I learned, I knew there was, you know, pushback, you know, towards state, you know, legislatures to you know, review the the slate, if you will. But I didn't know Trump and his crew were having like these covert secret meetings with the unofficial legislatures to send a an unofficial slate to Congress to kind of muddy things up. I didn't know there was like that covert mission going on mm. by Trump and his co-conspirators. Yeah. That was with, new to me. With the un- uh, with the unofficial electors, yeah, interesting. The fake the fake electors. Um, Here's a question coming in as a text message, Jill. Listener asks, will Trump's lawyers use Giuliani's deranged incompetence, as they put it, (laughs) as a defense, (laughs) i.e. that he was following, that Trump was following the legal advice of someone who turned out to be wrong? (laughs) Well, that is a great question. Thank you, listener, for that question. Um, The lawyers for Donald Trump have outraged me in many ways. They have said they will use a defense of legal advice, that you can rely on legal advice. First of all, that defense fails because he was deranged. He and all of them were deranged because most of them at some point admitted and the president, the former president, the defendant, knew that they admitted that their schemes were not within the Constitution or the Electoral College Act. And because his own White House counsel and many others were advising him that he could not do what they were telling him, that Mike Pence told him he couldn't do it, that it was not within the Constitution. So he had You cannot selectively listen to advice of counsel. And at one point, I believe the president says, well, I prefer the other point of view. 
you can't prefer the other point of view when rational people are telling you the other. You have to take into account what is true and what is obvious. It, any citizen knows that this is not how it goes, that the votes were cast, they were counted. There, And you mentioned about Rudy and fraud. Every time he was asked to present evidence, he demurred. He did not have any evidence. So the statement that you read, Brian, which is terrific, really shows what he's saying. Well, we have a lot of theories. We just don't have any evidence. That was true. And he knew it. And Donald Trump knew it. So the overwhelming evidence is he cannot rely on um, he cannot rely on the advice of counsel in this case. Listener tweets something I didn't realize an attempted coup, but a successful obstruction. Six hours. Easy case. He is charged with obstruction, not a coup, writes that listener. Lauren That's in a, the Bronx, you're on WNYC. Could Hi, I just Lauren. say to that one, yeah, that was quick. a great comment, a very insightful comment, because it goes to the heart of one of the other defenses the outrageous lawyers are using is it's an interference with his First Amendment rights. I, I, I don't use curse words, but that is baloney. Uh, substitute your own word for that. And that's because it it simply isn't true that there's any First Amendment interference. The indictment goes out of its way to say he's free to say anything he wants. He's free to even lie. He just can't con do conduct that interferes and obstructs. So he's charged with conduct, not words. Lauren in the Bronx, you're on WNYC. Hi, Lauren. Hello. Yes. My question really relates to exactly what she just said. So it is, what about the foot soldiers? What about the Dinesh Souzas who make the 2000 Mules movie? And they know perfectly well um, that it's not true. And they're doing it for the purpose of um, really as foot soldiers. Um, and, and there are a host of other people, Mark Levin. Uh, I'm sure you, you know who the kind of person I'm talking about, Tucker Carlson, for that matter, um, and the people at Fox News who yeah. were texting. Yeah, why are they uh, not suffering any legal actions against them at all? Lauren, thank you. I mean, those are all media people, Jill, uh, repeating what I guess the spe special counsel might argue if he was going after them that they knew was false but they're not the president trying to actually get in there or his lawyers trying to get in there and actually flip state legislatures and Mike Pence. Exactly. And um, uh, of course, the listener is correct, but it doesn't mean that there won't be consequences going forward. Um, and I would point out that Dominion won almost a billion dollars uh, against Fox News so that's a pretty big consequence for their perpetuating lies. Uh, the First Amendment allows you to go pretty far, but not to cause harm to another. And so there are several uh, lawsuits. Smartmatics has a similar lawsuit pending. And there may be more against some of these other people who lied and caused damage. Some of them may, you know, if they can be linked to conduct, that followed because the law uh, under the Supreme Court is that if there's an imminent danger that your words will lead to violence, for example, that's not protected by the First Amendment. So 
I don't know what will happen going forward, but the special counsel has to focus on what is right in front of us, which is the corrupt behavior of the former president while he was president. And that needs a speedy trial that happens before votes are cast in 2024. People need to know whether he is a felon, indicted and convicted before they vote. Listener texts, thank you for reading the indictment. I've been a close follower of the story, but what leapt out at me from the indictment is that it finally says the loud part out loud, maybe they meant the quiet part out loud, in that we see not just the actions, but their consequences laid out at the beginning in such clear terms at last. Philip in South Orange. Hi, Philip, you're on WNYC. What did you learn? Why, good morning. Thank you. Incredible show listening to it live. What jumped out at me was the um, number of times where it's documented that Trump had said, be peaceful. There's three or four times. And it spoke to me about his cunning, his ability to get out of real, you know, that mob bossy kind of thing, as well as um, Jack Smith placing it in the indictment to show us really why he's not going for that violent, seditious conspiracy charge. Philip, thank you. Jill, comment on that. Did he say peacefully more than that one time in his ellipse speech on the morning of January 6th? Well, there are sort of two references in what the part I read. The overall intent and, and clear message was go and fight like hell. That was the overarching message. But... It is a complicated issue that would end up delaying the trial. And I think that it is important that this trial proceed without undue complications. In the era of Watergate, we got to the Supreme Court. We, we were appointed in May of 73. We returned an indictment in March of 74. We had a verdict on January 1st of 75 having gone to trial in September of 74. And in between March and September, we went to the Supreme Court, had an oral argument and an opinion, and got cooperation from the president, Nixon, by his turning over tapes. So speedy trial meant something back then. Nowadays, with the Supreme Court we have and with everything else, I don't know what's going to happen. So you need to simplify to the extent that you need to the charges that have been brought have 20 years, 20 years, 10 years, and five years. That's 55 years potential sentence. That is not what anyone would get. There's all these sentencing factors. But I'm just saying a 55-year top end is pretty significant for a 77-year-old. So you don't need to add the complicating factors of seditious conspiracy insurrection. And Even if they did, there would then be a lot of appellate stuff that would go on for years as to whether it's constitutional to do that, to prevent someone from running for office. So I I think Jack Smith did the right thing. Jill Weinbanks, former Watergate prosecutor, author of the book, The Watergate Girl, which just came out a few years ago, host of the podcasts Sisters in Law and iGen Politics, and an MSNBC legal analyst. Jill, thank you so much for lending your wisdom today. We really appreciate your time. 
thank you for doing this. I hope everyone really learned a lot from it. it. It's a great read. Thank you very much, Brian. Brian Lehrer, A Daily Politics Podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you next time.